You said you had enough back, but instead you attack. You got me out of my head. We won't go and solve this time. We'll catch you and your crimes will be shining the light on you. Welcome to Cold Case MHS Monsters and Demons, where real education meets real life. I'm your host, Randy Hubbard, and I thank you for listening. I remember when I was a kid, we would go out and ride our bikes all day long, especially during the summer. You would wake up, check with your parents, well, sometimes check with your parents, then go out and ride and ride and ride until you couldn't do it anymore. If your friends couldn't make it out, you just rode around town by yourself with no care in the world. You weren't afraid of anything or anyone as you passed them on the street. It was the freedom that kept you out there all day and sometimes even into the night. But fear, it just didn't exist. Now, Mom wasn't always happy with me for being gone so long, and she would always throw out the I was afraid someone took you card to make me feel bad. But maybe there was something to that. Joanne Herbert was one that loved to ride her bike and talk to people while out. There was no one that she didn't think was her friend. She loved everyone. One day, a monster hiding in broad daylight approached Joanne. She thought he was a friend, and monsters only hide under your bed, right? But this one took advantage of Joanne during this deadly interaction. In 1981, the communities of Delaware and Franklin County in Ohio were shaken by the brutal murders of two young women. On July 22nd, Joanne Hebert, a 14-year-old girl, asked her brother if he wanted a soda before she rode on her 10-speed bike over to the local tag mart. She was last seen talking to someone on a nearby payphone. That night, both Joanne and her bike disappeared. Two months later, Robin Durr dropped her little brother off at a neighbor's house and rode her bike to the nearby convenience store. There she bought a soda and some candy. Robin was last seen riding her bike through the woods heading home. She never made it there. Robin's body was found by her father the next day. Joanne's body was found by a squirrel hunter three months later. Both were found in the woods. Both had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head and they had both been sexually assaulted. Both young women had ridden to the local market on their 10-speed bikes never to return. What happened to them? 40 years have passed and we still have many questions and very few answers. Tell us a little bit about Joanne and Robin. Well, let's start with Joanne. She was a 14-year-old girl who was preparing to go into high school once the summer ended. According to our sources, Joanne was a very quiet and timid young girl who was, according to her mother, frightened of simply living in the world. She was scared of life, school, and the world around her. Sadly, Joanne never really had the chance to move past those fears. Robin was kind of the polar opposite of Joanne. She was a very friendly and outgoing 19-year-old. She would ride past her neighbors on their bike, and according to the neighbors, you'd better have time to stop and talk to her, because she would talk your ear off. She was essentially the social butterfly of the town. Everybody knew her, everybody loved her, and she thought that everybody was her friend. She was just your normal teenage girl, normal 19-year-old, who would sneak out, run around with her friends, go to the local market, nothing out of the ordinary. I noticed when you were talking about the, the two parts there, that both of them were riding bikes or they were by themselves. Yes. If that's the case, what does that tell you a little bit about your killer? Well, obviously they want to wait until their victim is alone. 
Although, interesting enough, given the duality of Joanne and Robin, it kind of actually helped us narrow down this kind of person, because Joanne, she was small, a timid girl, rather short, small, scrawny. Since she was friend of the world, she would probably listen to an adult or an older person who was telling her what to do, who was ordering her to do something that she probably didn't want to do, but felt she didn't have a choice, which might be why your bike was left behind. A person just rolls up in their car, says, get in the car or else, and that's the last you see of her. Right. It almost sounds to me as if somebody was had time on their hands and they were driving around and happened to notice these two girls were by themselves. Almost. The We've theorized that this could be a delivery driver due to both of them going missing at stores. But then, of course, there's the person Joanne was talking up to on the payphone. And we don't know if it's the same person as her killer. There are currently no real records of the phone call or who she made it to. So, as of right now, that's just a big question mark. As for Robin, we are pretty sure she was lured into the woods instead of threatened in. We think it was someone relatively close to Robin's age, or maybe slightly older. Someone Robin thought that she would be cool for hanging out with. Since there's very little sign that Robin went into the woods or near her killer unwillingly. Right. So when you talked about the two girls and their connection, mainly their age, their teenagers, but what else about them or what characteristics did they have that might have a connection to each other? I mean, there are the obvious similarities between the cases, the closeness of the case. They were only like a 30 minute drive from each other. They looked similar enough. They both had brown hair, similar colored eyes. They were both relatively short. Although while Joanne was rather scrawny, Robin was a bit larger, a bit more well-built, but still easy enough to overpower if you got the jump on her. And given that she was friendly to a fault, it wouldn't have been too hard for someone to lure her into the woods as a friend and then well, just hit her in the back of the head over and over until she died. So with the two victims, you said that her father, one of them's father found her the Robin, next day. Right? yes. Okay. She was found in near the railroad tracks in the abandoned quarry behind their house. Okay. So whoever did it most likely killed them pretty quickly after they abducted them. Relatively so. Since our given timeline is for Robin, we know that she left for, she was at the market around 7.40. And her body was found only about 12 hours later, in fact. And her family went looking for her relatively quickly, called the police relatively quickly. So my guess is she wasn't alive for that long. Okay, and Robin was the younger one, correct? No, Robin, Robin was, was the, the older, older one. one, 19. Okay. So was it unusual for her not to come home quickly after being out on her bike? Is that why they went searching pretty quickly? It's complicated. Because something we've noted is that Robin left her younger brother at the neighbor's house. And while that seems perfectly normal today, whenever you're like going out to ride to the market or whatnot, back then... It was kind of more than norm to leave children alone, even young children. 
So she was just running to the store, something that should have taken her maybe 20-30 minutes. It shouldn't, she probably would have just left her brother at home, made sure some precautions were taken, and left. The fact that she left him at a neighbor's house signals the fact that she might have been going to meet someone. And I'm not entirely sure how unusual it was for her to not be there, although her family probably noticed something was wrong when they found the brother at the neighbor's house and Robin still hadn't returned. He probably told them, oh yeah, Robin went out to the market. She should have been back by now. And when they couldn't contact her or find her, that's when they started searching. Now, did Joanne's family, did they search right away or? It took them longer because you have to remember, Joanne, like she didn't have any obligation to be back home. In fact, I don't think they started looking until maybe 11 at night. Let me double check that real quick. Yeah, she started searching for them at 11 p.m. Okay. At that point, she had been gone multiple hours. Right. Right. And well, and if you think about people from our our era, which is my era, which I'm aging myself just a little (laughs) bit, but we would be out from the time the sun came up and we were always told to be in before the street lights came on. Yeah. And for her not being home by 10, 1030, That's that would make sense. when the red flags go off. Right. right. And it wouldn't be unusual for a 14-year-old to be out all day long. Especially during the summer, no right. school, no homework. Right. I mean, I know, goodness knows my sleep schedule and the times I stay out late at night during the summer go way up compared to during school days so right right and that was that was a common occurrence back then so yeah, they probably uh, didn't think anything was wrong and then 11 o'clock comes around they start to look for her and then 2 a.m they actually called the police when they couldn't find her couldn't anymore. find her anymore yeah right um so was she found close to her home or was she found further away than she was robin was actually not cl- as close as robin robin Normally, bodies aren't found that close to home. Robin was actually a bit unique in that way. Almost like somebody wanted someone to find her. Or someone in her family to find her more specifically, which is all kinds of messed up. But, well, Joanne, on the other hand, was found a couple of miles away. Not very far, like maybe two miles away in a little wooded area at an intersection. A squirrel hunter was going through that area, found some bones, and called the police. Okay. And you had mentioned that both of them were close to railroad tracks? Yes, that was something interesting we noted it at first. Okay. Because when we, so we got on Google Earth, zoomed out, and for Robin, she was almost right next to the railroad tracks. As for Joanne, if you just zoomed out, like, maybe a little across the street, there were railroad tracks, and okay. so that was our big hint that the killer might be either moving along the railroads or the interstate. Right. Okay. So was the road or the highway or any kind of roads close to the locations where their bodies were found? Relatively so. There okay. were and there were highways that connected the two. Right. In fact, we drew up some maps and some pictures and you could see that there were 
tracks and highways that branch from each case. Okay, so the fact that the bodies were not right next to the house does tell you that whoever did it probably had a way of moving them, like putting them into a car or a truck or yeah. a van or something of that nature. And they probably picked railroad tracks because if you ever seen railroad tracks, like after you get past the intersections, it gets kind of, I don't say scary, but it gets very remote. A lot of times there's trees and things like that around railroad tracks. Yes, we also noted that. It's, right. they'll maybe occasionally cross into like actual roads or populated areas, but they try to stay in more wooded, remote, rural areas, so. Right. So it would be easily. side body. Right. And it could be maybe somebody that worked with the railroad companies who possibly knew that those tracks would be close to to wooded areas and things like that. Now, that's just an assumption. Don't know for sure, but that could be something. It could equally be someone who's been to the town several times or knows his way around. Right. So, uh, as of this day, these cases are still cold, correct? Yes, although Joanne's case has been reopened, okay. which very important. However, that is actually why we chose to take on Robin's case as well. We started with Joanne and immediately realized that there was basically no information about her online. It took us a month to get a picture of her. That's how bad it was. Okay. Like there was a single like thing on the Union County Sheriff's Department website, um, a page on WebSleuths, but that's never been the most accurate source of information. Right. And so we contacted the police department in the coroner's office to see if they could give us anything. And the coroner called back, and I'd like to thank him for that, just not ignoring us, mm -hmm. and told us, in fact, that the case had been reopened. Okay. And that's great, but it meant that we we're not going to get any information out of the coroner and the police department. And so instead, he suggested that we look into Robin's case. He never really said that they were related, but he noted the similarities between the cases. And so we actually had a lot better... We just got more information for Robin. We actually managed to contact some family members. Robin's younger brother and older sister, Rhonda and Ron Durr. They were very helpful. I'd like to thank them as well if they are listening. Right. And so that's when we went from there. And interestingly enough, we actually may have found a third victim. If this is a serial killer, we may have found a third victim. And this is Asenath Ducat. She was eight years old in the first community village. She was walking home from school, but she was abducted halfway through her way home, dragged into a nearby wooded area, had her head bashed in with a heavy rock, and then was sexually assaulted. Interestingly enough, they actually have found the man responsible for this case, a man named Brent Strutner, who was posthumously convicted of the crime since he killed himself in 1984. And there's a reason why we think that these cases might be related. Obviously, there's the blunt force head trauma, the sexual assault and it just kind of an interesting pattern appeared in which this case took place in 1980 so we were like so what if the killer's escalating first you go after an eight-year-old because eight-year-olds 
easy to take care of, easy to kill. Mm -hmm. Smaller body, easier to hide. Mm -hmm. And so, strikes there, kills Asenath, and we actually plotted where the guy lived, and it was right in the middle of- if you drew a line between where Robin was killed and Joanne was killed, he was right in the middle. So we were thinking, so he starts small, goes nearby to the first community village, kills an eight-year-old, manages to get away from it. He did get imprisoned and he was in jail in the first three or four months of 1981, but nobody knows where he was after that. So he gets out of jail, goes in one direction, kills Joanne, gets away with it, goes in the opposite direction kills Robin. And then eventually, he may have killed more, we don't know. And then after that, he eventually the guilt and the paranoia gets to him, and in 1984, he kills himself. This is all speculation. There's no way to confirm it, especially since he's dead, but... Now, you said he was convicted in Asa's murder, Yes, correct? he was. Was he convicted on circumstantial evidence, or did they do recent tests? I to... believe they did some DNA tests. Combine that with a matter of somewhat circumstantial factors, such as people had seen him trying to abduct another girl on a bike mm-hmm. just a month before. He had been seen around the area. He had been acting very suspicious the time of the incident actually attacked a police officer who went to talk to him it was a lot of both circumstantial evidence and just plain evidence mixed together okay so you said that joanne's case has been reopened yes it has been reopened they've exhumed her body okay they've found something i believe i don't know what it is i can't say i don't have any information on this case but if they've exhumed her body, okay, implies that they've found something. Okay, so when we talked to the coroner's investigators, who we actually talked to, yes. um, he mentioned that it was reopened and that they exhumed yes. the body, which does tell you this. They've got a pretty viable tip mm-hmm. about something, and they exhumed her body to do another set of DNA testing. Yes. I would say if they're that far, if they are exhuming the body, which means the family had to give them permission to do that, yes. that they're pretty confident that something is going to happen soon. Just recently, actually I was just talking about it in really? one of our last episodes from season two, they just solved the case, 44 years old in Cincinnati, Ohio, based on DNA that they just now received. And again, it was somebody who died a while back they committed that crime so it sounds to me like they have some kind of a viable piece of evidence that came back yes could be somebody that on their deathbed may have said something or somebody that was afraid for a long time that finally said something and who knows maybe it could be yes. maybe it could be your uh, supposed or possible serial killer we don't know so we'll possibly, have to wait and see but there's no guarantee of anything right. and I don't want to make any claims or statements right. when nothing's for certain exactly exactly and that's one of the reasons why they didn't tell you much about it is because they don't want to give out false information or not false information but false hope to anybody too exactly there's no guarantee this case will be solved right actually that's a lot of these cold cases go cold for several reasons lots of struggles that we face they just 
either don't have the evidence, people aren't willing to speak up, especially this was the 1980s. DNA testing was not really a thing. Fingerprint testing, not really a thing. Right. I mean... Technology has advanced yes. and, and things are changing. And unfortunately with those old cases like that, the evidence could have been lost. It's filed in a box somewhere. Um, the box could have been destroyed. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that could happen, which is an unfortunate part of it. And also the fact that police departments and investigative units are losing money and they don't have as many people anymore. So these cases get harder and harder to work on. So hopefully, hopefully, hopefully through all the stuff that they can come up with anything. In your research, what were some of the difficulties you had? Because I know you had a lot. So. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, let's start. This was actually originally a group of four. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, over the last second semester, for various reasons, the group members left. And I understand their reasons. I do. It just kind of made things a little bit more difficult. But I would still like to thank them for their contributions. I couldn't have gotten this far without you guys. Right. Right. And that's one of the things that's, that's difficult when we start working on these. It's not every, It's not for everybody. No. And like you said, other things kind of came up for a few of them and they had to leave. What were some other issues you had along the way? It's just getting information you, you gotta understand this case was 43 years ago most of the witnesses or sources of information are either extremely old dead don't remember anything or may or may not be willing to speak up even one of our best sources of information ronder he was only five at the time he doesn't really remember all that much and we're lucky ronda was willing to speak to us at all and even they don't know everything about the case. They could tell us about Robin, who she was, but not much more. Right. And with Joanne, it was even worse, even more exasperated. There were no witnesses, no cameras, nobody really knew, even knew when she disappeared or saw anything that happened. And when we tried to look for family members, we looked everywhere, Ancestry.com, DNA, we scoured the internet for yearbooks, phone numbers, and we managed to find some of Robin's family members while doing that, but as for Joanne, it's like she had parents, but that's it. We couldn't even find evidence that she had a brother outside of the police report. Right. It's like they disappeared off the face of the earth. Right. Well, and there, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, the time period. Yep. Um, documentation and things like that in the time period was probably not as advanced as it is now. No. Um, the other thing is that some family members, like you said, 40 some years ago, a lot of them may not even be around anymore. Exactly. And others, sometimes they close down. They don't want to talk about it anymore. They've talked about it enough. There's no answers. They don't want to get false hopes. Right. And oftentimes that can cause people not to respond to you. The other thing is that we're still trying to establish ourselves, so sometimes when you get a phone call from a teacher and some students, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't necessarily sound like it's something that people are really serious about, which is what we're trying to get everybody to understand. We are trying to help. We're trying to get the stories back out. We're trying to look for any lead that maybe somebody didn't talk about before. So that's one of the big things I think that hopefully with your story and the work you went through, 
maybe people will start to change a little bit. If we can just get some information, if anybody out there has any information on this case, doesn't matter how unimportant you think it is, contact us, contact the police station, it could be the difference. Right, exactly. And that's the biggest thing is to try to get the stories back out. These two young girls were taken from us way too early. And unfortunately, even though it's 40-some years later, it still hurts to the family and, and people that knew them. So I appreciate all the work that you've done. Thank you. I appreciate the fact that you kept going when things got kind of blurry there for yes. you. Yes. But I really appreciate the work that you've done. And like we said, if you do have any information or have heard anything, usually in cases like this, somebody has told somebody something, but maybe they didn't think it was that important. But somebody out there knows something. So if you have any information or any ideas, like she said, please contact the police department, which I think it's the Columbus Police Department or... Um, Union County Police Department and the Franklin County Police okay. Department. Okay, so we'll give you that information on the podcast notes later. But if you have any information on those things, please feel free to contact them. Please do. And if you don't want to talk to them and you want us to relay that message, we can do that as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cold Case MHS, Monsters and Demons, is written by the Mason High School Cold Case students. The editing is done by current student Lydia Lisko and produced by me. Thank you for listening to Episode 5, The Deadly Interaction. Tune in to Episode 6 when we talk about a bright young man named Raymond Wells. Like many young men, he was searching for a role model that was missing from his life. Unfortunately, this allows a very manipulative individual to become his destructive mentor. you end.